For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Well, good morning, and I think it's morning for everyone. Sometimes in the cloud, we're not sure where, what it is, but it's morning for everyone. Uh, welcome. So here we are in this moment, forming, you know, encompassing this practice body, one practice body, kind of across time and space, thanks to technology. So someone in our community made a request and said, I wish someone would talk about the time people spent at Tassajara. And uh, strangely, or fortuitously, almost everyone who was at Tassajara uh, with the exception of maybe a couple people uh, in Ancient Dragon, is is here either online or in person today. So um, maybe I'll just let all y'all do the Dharma talk. <laughs> uh, but you're off the hook. I'll say a few words, and then you're welcome to say some, too. And I apologize, because some of this is... Uh, You've heard before uh, from me when we spent time, those of you who spent time together uh, at Tassajara, you've heard some of these words. However, I wanted to share them with everyone. I also want to place the warning label on even speaking about Tassajara. So Tassajara recently about a dozen people from our group, our community, went to the mountains in Northern California to this place, monastic Soto Zen Buddhist temple, monastery practice place called Tassajara. It's in kind of west of Carmel, California, east of Carmel, sorry, into the mountains and then down into a valley, a deep valley. And this place is a training monastery for San Francisco Zen Center. It's a residential practice place. And I think it's the first, like, Soto Zen monastery in the West. But I could be wrong. But it was born as our practice place in Suzuki Roshi's lineage. Uh, in the early 60s. So it has this long tradition for us at Ancient Dragon, connecting to our ancestors. But it also has this kind of mythic, privileged place in Soto Zen in America. People are like, have you been to Tassajara? (laughs) I know you're a real (laughs) practitioner. You've been there. 
Yeah. And, and you're like, yeah, I've been a Tassafar. Did you even do a practice period? Tassafar, 90-day stint off the grid? Yeah. Or, no, I was only there for a few days. Something like that. So I lived at Tassafar 20 years, you know. So, so there's this kind of thing around Tassafar. And then people who answer, I've never been there, feel like, Maybe my practice isn't so good. Maybe I haven't really made it in the world of Zen Buddhism in America. Japanese people in the Soto lineage might even think that Tosmar doesn't count very much because it's not really Japanese. It's like we've been in Japan. So, you know, we can keep this kind of gaining mind going. We can keep it going, or we can choose not to and realize, as I felt, that we were all together at Tassar. And I think some of you who went to Tassar could feel that. We already knew each other. We were moving together with the world, but we could sense our deep interconnectedness. We can feel that. That's a possibility for us. Someone even said, oh, this is possible to live in this way in our group. This is possible to actually live in a way that includes everyone and is sensitive. So I encourage us to be sensitive to the human tendency of in-group or out-group, you know, in-crowd, out-crowd, I'm in with the in-crowd. Uh, thinking that operates in even the minds of great meditation practitioners. Maybe it operates less in those who don't even think of themselves as that great. But uh, nonetheless, for me, you know, it was a beautiful time. And I've never, in my practice, since I've started practicing in this way, felt apart from Tassahara. Because my teacher would write me letters from Tassahara when I first practiced with him. I'd get letters and postcards. This is how, what I did when I woke up in the morning. This is what I heard after the wake-up bell. And I was scared to go to Tassahara myself because it's in these steep mountains and I'm sort of a flatland person. I grew up in Southern Florida by the ocean. It's pretty flat. Chicago, you know, I don't see any. A hill is like, you know, strenuous, like a little going over a bridge for us. But these mountains, oh, scary. Fall off the side of a cliff. You know, even driving to Tassajara, you have to go 14 miles on an unpaved road. No guardrails. Lots of bouncing around in any vehicle you take in and you look over the side and it's like, ooh, that's pretty intense. I could die. Let me just see for a second if I have. Yeah. I can have a, an image of what it looks like to look over the edge. It's kind of beautiful. Uh, wait, if you pass it around. That was a little bookmark my teacher made for me. 
to encourage me to check it out, maybe. But, you know, in our own minds and bodies, there are these mountains and edges and cliffs that we could readily tumble over. There are places that scare us as the wild things, right, the kids' book. And our work is to go to those places. So we made this journey together, some of us in our physical bodies, some of us, I don't know, astrally projecting <laughs> to Dasara without even knowing it. And we, at this Sangha week, so we had to get to Northern California, get ourselves together, go to a place where Tassajara sent out vehicles to pick us up and bring us in. So that was a big effort for us Chicagoans, as Miss Wedersterners, you know, to come into Northern California and find our way. And we actually all survived. Almost lost someone, wandered off into the mountains, but we, we seemed to, and someone got very ill, but then got better. So everything that happens in real life just happens there. And we also were following this group of uh, communities and practitioners in all across the U.S. and maybe the world called Branching Streams, which are groups like us, lay practitioners outside of the mothership, the Vatican of San Francisco Zen Center, and not in monastic residence, just living our lives outside. We all came together at Tassajara. So there were three groups at this particular week we attended, Ancient Dragon, Berkeley Zen Center, and uh, the San Francisco Zen Center Queer Dharma Group. Tassajara again, in case another view. And we blended right in with the Tassajara residential community. So there's a whole community of, you know, maybe 20-ish people living at Tassajara, taking care of it all summer, all year long. And then people come in and out for various things. So we were in this Sangha week. And I was impressed at how ancient dragon just flowed right into these other streams as if we'd all kind of known each other. It didn't feel like, oh, I'm from Berkeley. I'm from San Francisco. I'm from, you know, ancient dragon, Chicago. Um, and Tassajara is a little, you know, it's off the grid. People live in cabins. There isn't readily available or not too readily available electricity. No internet that people can easily log into. And so this is like summer camp kind of, or boot camp for bodhisattvas. One of my friends who lived at Tassajara went there like in her 70s and she was like, and she lived there for a couple of years. She was like, I loved Girl Scout camp. It was my favorite thing in the world, going to camp during summer. I loved the structure. I loved, it was, my mother wasn't kind to me, but the people I worked with and lived with at camp were so kind to me. So she was like, Tassara, I thought it would be like Girl Scout camp, but it was really hard for me. I didn't feel like I belonged. Uh, and 
So it's possible to go there and to feel like it's difficult or that you don't belong, just like any place in the world. It's especially true if you have ideas about how you think it's supposed to be. Um, when I was there this time, I was surprised at how familiar it felt, even though I haven't spent very much time there, and how I felt I was there for the first time again. So this is every moment of our life in some ways, intimate and familiar and completely new and fresh. So the residents were kind of like our administrative staff and counselors. <laughs> and some of the teachers were kind of like group leaders or cabin leaders, you know, and then everyone else is just everyone else following along, but we all follow the same schedule, which is an interesting thing. This is what we do even in our practice together is all of a sudden we come together and we're following the same schedule. We're, and at Tassahara you get up, we, in this particular situation called Sangha week, we woke up at 5.30 a.m., a wake-up bell, nice little bell ringing. Uh, woke us up in the morning. Some people woke up a little extra early to get their coffee. You know, people are like, but there's coffee at Tassahara. You know, it's kind of good. There's also tea and other beverages. So it's not too difficult. But we would wake up together. We'd sit sazen and do some chanting in the morning first thing every day. Then we'd have breakfast together. Then we'd meet in a circle like this for work, get our work assignments, have lunch together, wash our dishes together, have evening service, dinner, then evening zazen. We'd have breaks in between. And we'd end uh, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha after sitting zazen in the evening. So every morning and every evening, we sat zazen, not too much, you know, but probably most people don't spend about an hour, let's say, every morning and every evening practicing in our busy lives. That's almost impossible to do for most people, no matter what you do and how you arrange your life when you have a job, have family, have children, have a dog, have, you know, your own life. So this was a unique thing to just have that time to settle into Zazen. Also, unlike since Zoom, everybody gets to the Zendo often about three minutes before the bell rings, if we're lucky, some online one second or 10 seconds later. Uh, but at, in a monastic setting like that, and in and pre-pandemic, people would be in the Zendo like 10 minutes before Zazen. So you're already sitting an extra 10, you know, and then you're counting, okay, 10 minutes extra in the morning. And then like the periods are 40 minutes long. So that means I've got 50 minutes and then there's a center, you know, so you, you start like, that's like many times what you would be normally sitting. Um, and then one day we had a, a half day sitting after breakfast, that was a little different. In the afternoons, we met and sat in a circle as separate groups, for the most part, and shared 
our practice together. Ancient Dragon uh, got together with another one of the groups and shared uh, time with each other. We were kind of rejected by one group. One group didn't want to join us, but but we, we, we joined each other. That's okay. They had their own thing. So there was a lot of space for people to do what they needed to do to find out who you are. To find out how to live harmoniously and authentically. Not to hide. We bathed together. You know, it was kind of communal bathing areas. Separated by, I guess, apparent gender, female, male side. They're still working that out, I think. But uh, we bathed together. So not much was hidden. The walls are kind of thin at Tosapara. If you sneeze, somebody hears it. And it's like, oh, are you okay? Do you need something? You know? Um, so I'll tell a few Tasahara stories. I call them love stories. Uh, this is what we learn in our practice, unconditioned, unconditional love. In our bodies and in our activities, in our hearts. So I'll tell some stories. So these are short stories, and then I'll tell a longer story. So here's one. Each evening, the moon at Tassahara became fuller and brighter. And here's the end of the story. And then we celebrated the full moon with a ceremony called the Full Moon Bodhisattva Precept Ceremony together in the Zendo. Another story. Wade and I were walking together in a garden by the swimming pool at Tassahara. And Wade pointed to the ground and saw a small bag there and picked it up. After, and wondered, is this trash? <laughs> and after picking it up and looking inside, he said, oh, somebody's collecting columbine seeds. seeds. And he returned it to the ground where it was. And I thought, end of story. This is my end, what I thought. Hmm. This is how we build a sanctuary. This is how we build a place of practice. We wonder, we cultivate the Buddha field. We wander and carefully observe and respond. And then we return the seeds to the soil and let them do what they need to do. And we return to just walking around, living our lives. This is a practice of samadhi, of concentration, of meditative concentration as we walk. Uh, and also of metta or loving kindness, of caring for things, of picking something up, not knowing what it is with the intention of caring for it. Is this a piece of garbage that needs to be put someplace else? Or is it a jewel that needs to be returned to its place? And then just put it down, trusting 
that it has its own place in the world. This is our life. Another story. We washed dishes together. We ate together. We bathed together. We rose in the morning together. We dreamed at night together. We sat in Zazen together. Our bodies grew tired together. We laughed together. We cried together out of happiness and sorrow. We made offerings to our founder, Shinri Suzuki, together. We got lost in the mountains together. End of story. We found our way home together. So each moment of our lives contains this kind of story. So here's a little longer story that I shared. So apologies for the repeat. Um, But this was a surprising event. Most everything was surprising. I thought I was going to stay in kind of a super humble cabin and ended up in kind of a palace of a room, (laughs) a cool stone palace. I'm like, somebody must have made a mistake. How did I get here? Uh, But it worked out quite well, I think, for everyone. And I had read something. So a work period at Tuskar is a little different than like our little temple cleaning periods in Ancient Dragon or even during Sashin. You know, they're several hours long and you meet in a circle. And when you meet in that circle, it's a real time for sharing and connection too. We acknowledge people who are coming and going. People apologize for losing something or hitting the bell wrong or at a at a time that doesn't seem correct by some standard, making a non-standard bell ringing error, you could say. Um, All sorts of things happen, and then we get jobs, and we kind of go off and work for a few hours in groups or wherever we're assigned, led by our camp counselors. And uh, But I had read that work period was optional for people who were leading the Zen groups, and this was surprising to me. And I was pretty tired when I got to Tuskar, and I thought, oh, maybe I won't go to work circle. I told one of my Zen friends. But somehow, I ended up at work circle. I couldn't not go. As a matter of fact, I didn't even think about, about whether I was going or not. My body just brought me there. I'm like, oh, I'm at work circle. Okay. <laughs> And this is really true. I'm like, oh, I'm just, oh, here I am now. I guess I'm stuck. I couldn't really leave. Like, once you get there, it's really hard to, like, just say I'm going to blow this off. Right? So <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> but I'm not that advanced as a practitioner. <laughs> so uh, everybody gets job assignments. And I was, uh, I volunteered to work in the Zendo, which is usually just cleaning the Zendo brushing the cushions, you know, and thought, okay, that's a decent place to work. Um, a lot of times people don't want to work in the Zendo because it's kind of 
repetitive work, a little difficult physically sometimes to brush all the cushions off, you know, down on your knees. Um, but then I, it was a surprise announcement that they needed someone to uh, do sewing to repair old robes. And they asked if anybody had sewing experience. And I have a very small, specialized hand sewing experience, uh, just sewing things like these robes. It's the only thing I've ever sewn. But I'm like, okay. Uh, but then someone volunteered me to, to be the, the leader of this group of sewing people. I'm like, well, I don't know anything about sewing robes, like like practice robes, you know, these these kind of robes, which is clothing as opposed to these kind of robes, which are ceremonial garments, let's say. Uh, I mean, maybe I've sewn a button on, something like that. But I was like, okay, I'll do this. And... Uh, we were sent to the robe closet and somebody brought back like a dozen or so of these practice robes. And these, they're kind of like these Karomo kimono like robes, but they're robes that people who come to Tassahara and live there for long periods of time, everybody wears some kind of robe over robe and lay people wear these over robes, but like they might never own one. They just go to Tassahara and borrow one. And these robes are, I don't know, they were in pretty, pretty bad state, like shredded, some of them. <laughs> tattered, you know, like the definition of tattered. Um, I don't know if anyone, some of you, I think uh, Michael and Wade both saw these robes. Jerry, maybe? No. Um, anyone want to comment on the state of the robes? Holy. Holy. <laughs> they needed sutures. <laughs> they needed sutures. They needed sutras. So we, we sutured sutras into these robes. We had a giant work crew. So this is unheard of for usually at Tassahar, everybody's just working to maintain the property. And these robes that are hanging out in the closet never get attention because people are just too busy to pay attention to them. And then somebody just puts them on during the practice period and they fall apart even more. So to have like a group of six people working on these robes, six people plus was kind of amazing. Um, and I knew nothing about repairing robes, but miraculously we had someone who was a, a quilting kind of expert and a sub expert who could run sewing machines. And we had people who had like family history of being tailors. So they actually knew how to sew and patch things and put things together. So we had this little factory going in the dining room at Tassahara. And uh, all of a sudden patches were made and ties were made to tie the kimono-like garments together. And suddenly these monks' robes were 
renewed and liberated from their suffering, (laughs) their tatteredness. Uh, And we work mostly in silence. And some people knew nothing about sewing and were like, what should I do here? Other people were like, got out of sewing machine and just started rocking, you know, big seams. Uh, But there was a kind of visceral, you could say, meditative samadhi of working with this material, with the thread, with the pins, with the needles, with the fabric. Even the fabric we used to patch the robes were discarded fabric. <laughs> like it wasn't like we had nice fabric where we'd be like, oh, we'll match this color perfectly. You know, it was like, ah, good enough. It's kind of dark atas Sahara, blue and black look kind of the same. And we used what we had that would fit. But this, through this contact and through this presence with the material world, I think everyone on this project uh, felt a deep connection to this community and to our practice, you know, over tens, if not 50 years, people were probably had worn these robes and we started to feel connection to it. And I think there was just this quiet delight that we all belong together with these ancient robes and their wearers, everyone who might've touched those robes. practiced in those robes, cried in those robes, were frustrated in those robes, felt great meditative awakenings in those robes. Uh, We felt connection to them Uh, and to each other in sharing this wish to realize the love, you could say, the devotion the caring entangled in these robes that are none other than that, which is, you know, the pain, the joy, but the Bodhisattva vow to benefit the world that's tangled into our own karmic habits and tendencies. Um, You know, a lot of times there's a kind of sense that we're unraveling our karma, but we're also making it whole with our lives, or by karma, I mean our habits and tendencies. What's left over from our childhood pains, what our parents did and didn't do for us, what our biology is directing us towards, maybe uh, like dualistic thinking. But that gets unraveled and rewoven in our practice. So we were really lucky to be together. And I felt really like lucky that I just like showed up at this situation. Even if part of me wasn't so enthusiastic about it initially, this is how practice is. You just kind of like you arrive on the scene and you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's difficult, you know, like it could be difficult if it's like, I want this robe to be perfect. I want it to have everything right and every stitch I put. You, you notice what happens, right, when we get into that mind state. But when you're just like, oh, here's a robe. What does it need? And the robe will talk back to you. The fabric will say, 
oh, nope, I don't need that. Actually, I need you to make even a bigger patch, <laughs> you know, or I just need a little stitch, not the whole thing. So, so we learn how to live this way in almost every facet of our lives uh, and support each other. Uh, and then, you know, this sewing of tattered robes, practice robes, and reinforcing weak material and creating wholeness. Uh, these became robes of peace, <laughs> community, and of this unconditional, unconditioned love. You know, psychologists will be like, one of the most healing things for a human, but I would say for our planet, is unconditional love. Like, what's that like? If we loved our planet unconditionally, you know, and unconditioned, that is not constrained by our ideas of things and our habits. So in some ways, our whole practice, you know, in Dogen, there's a sense that we're covered by Buddha's robe always. And this is something we, I think, learned at Tassajara. And even... <laughs> You know, just a little, tad a little sweetness to this kind of love story. Someone in the group, another Zen teacher, suggested that we write little blessings on papers for each robe. <laughs> and we just, everybody got a piece of paper and wrote a little blessing. And then we randomly distributed them to the robes and attached them to them. So the next person who gets this robe, who touches it, uh, has that it was anonymous it was personal and spontaneous uh, which I think is our practice in some ways anonymous let's say not attached to a specific fixed idea of self so it wasn't like the person who repaired the robe was like and this is from so-and-so who did such a good job repairing your robe it was just like we're just offering this so then the life becomes offering our whole life is an offering so um, I think I've spoken way too much. So thank you for listening to me. I will. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's maybe just enough for us today for me. But how about you, Bodhisattvas? How is Tassahara for you? How is it hearing this? And also just new people, how is your practice here at our little humble abode <laughs> called Lincoln Square Zendo? So please, you know, our forum really is, or our convention is just to, to you know, either raise your hand or just start speaking. And uh, our techno, which is the name of the position Wade is occupying right now, uh, will help us uh, with people online and even people in the room. So, Jerry, Bodhisattva. The thing that struck me the most was how... We might need you to speak up a little if you could. The thing that struck me was how developed it was. My sister has a farm in southern Kentucky. She bought She was a kid in the 20s. And they built the house off the grid. So, I didn't help do that. <laughs> but I heard all the stories about the issues they had and, and they tried to put in a washer dryer. They realized they didn't have enough sun panels. 
the complications to get a flush toilet to work, so they went with the mm -hmm. composting toilet. Tessa Herman has been there since the 60s, so they had 60 years to do this. Mm -hmm. I get that. But over those 60 years, people showed up who knew something. They knew plumbing, mm -hmm. they knew architecture, they understood how energy works and how many sun panels you need, they understood how much water was in the creek that they could draw, they knew how to dig and get a cistern to actually work. They knew how to install the generator. And over those 60 years, various people showed probably some of them haven't been back since they started. But the place has this history of all of those spirits of people who went. You go there today, it's kind of spa-like. i got to say, I've been to Shishin's where you get a little piece of floor and you're sleeping. You know, your toilet's five blocks away. I have a room with a really nice soft bed, electricity, little outlet, running water. It's like, okay. There's a really nice pool area all enclosed that has a cold shower and a flush toilet and, the pool, and cemented in pool. There's a really nice at the under end Japanese bath area with a nice Japanese bath, uh, hot tub, really nice area to walk, sun yourself, nice little outdoor sauna, a little uh, spring pool that you can sit in, and one of those hot springs outdoor. Wow. It's, there's an uh, industrial kitchen that is, this is the kitchen to beat all kitchens, it's very <laughs> nice. And they're in the middle of no, literally nowhere. There's, you know, this is all solar panels. There's a generator, I think. Um, piping. I don't know how people got these pipes through these these mountain places to get to these little cabins. The garden. Nobody has to come and water that every day. There's piping in the gardens that, like, you have in your regular systems in the suburbs. Very, very nice. It's a very nice and. The thing is, people did this, and some people probably knew what they were doing. Some people probably showed up and learned from somebody else, but there was a lot of serious sweat equity and time spent and thought put into this over the years by people who, maybe some of them are still practicing, maybe some of them practiced for a time and went on to other things, mm -hmm. but you get that sense that over the years, strangers <laughs> showed up put love into this and moved on or stayed, but it's a really nice, they have a lot of really nice, and they have really nice flush toilets. <laughs> Somebody understood sanitation. <laughs> I happen to know the plumbers. Okay. <laughs> so my teacher is a plumber and his friends are plumbers. And also to know, there are still, I think, some composting toilets at Tassara, but, you know, there was a time when there was no solar, when things were lit with kerosene lamps, mm -hmm. and that's how rooms were warmed. You'd get like three kerosene lamps and put them in your room, which, you know, the carbon footprint of Tassahara is now making up for it with solar, but it might take a long time. But I think this is, this is what's possible to actually learn from mistakes and try to care and steward the land, which had we... Think about it. That's done in 50 or 60 years. If we spend 50 or 60 years caring for our planet in this way and each other, what might we have? Paradise. We might not have all the space in the world, but we're comfortable enough. You're comfortable enough because to practice, you have to be comfortable enough. 
monks who practice in caves, you know, you read about them. They have people who come and feed them. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, you have to be comfortable enough. Uh, and, but, but maybe not have too much. And, and have people who are willing to come, like you said, Jerry, and think, and, you know, people had to walk those solar panels up to where they're installed. And I remember because I was there when they were installing some of them, and there was a lot of discussion about who was strong enough to carry them and put them up. But I know that um, Simone had a comment. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. sorry. The, the technology part ties a lot together with the Dharma talks that I heard from Bogets and from also Leslie. It's not the same there because I noticed the same thing. Jerry, it's actually pretty good technologically. Like, even with the water, I was surprised. Like, there is one system that is just out, made out of like gravity. There, is four, there are four sources of water there. One just like gravity actions, 50% mm -hmm. of the sprinklers against the fires there. And they call it Dharma rain because it doesn't gravity to work. But they also have a backup system. The pool is a backup system for the water and the fires there. So there's a lot of that, but not just that. Like Leslie had a Dharma talk where she mentioned feeling safe enough. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I feel about bringing things back because kind souls work there to bring it there. But how we bring back that enough concept to build that is also a question because to me that is the practice in the everyday that is not just like at the Zendo or at the Sahara. And that's kind of how I decided to interpret that because they yeah. have everything. There is the internet. Is. But how is it used? You know, <laughs> you say where, but yeah. right or where? Yeah, or where? Like, or you know, people have this. Um, the, for the technology, there is solar, but the solar power only powers certain lights, keeps a certain like color temperature that is around twenty eight hundred Kelvin degrees. So it's like candlelight, so it doesn't disrupt your cycle and all those things. There is care in all these details that help the structure of that. And bringing like the questions like, what is enough? What is enough of that tool, the internet, the water, the life, the solar that I can bring back and use to do that? So that was that was the mm -hmm. what, I, what I I saw that you know I saw the use of technology that was in the background to serve the purpose and the structure of the people rather than over like most is not always better. What is enough that is good enough for us? To, to nurture what we care about, and that's what I think that partially has. And, and one more thing, sorry, that yeah, I'm going to do with the employees. Um, you know, they're joking, one of the people at the Sahara the last couple of days were just like, well, you don't have to leave, you can stay. They weren't oh. joking, they need workers. <laughs> I know, it was Leslie, and it was uh, Jenny, so she was mm -hmm. like, you stay? I'm like, well, you know, I'm trying to commit to our things, working. I was like, you're not going to come. I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to work from here. Like, I get it. Um, but, like, I'll be back. Um, but it did feel a lot like... To go back and be that person in the everyday life, what can I bring back with you enough? It feel like I'm very much in the crowd of like, oh, this is possible. <laughs> like, well, it's kind of like you have been given a delicious meal and you come back and go like, we have all the ingredients. Why do we need this pre-made food with our spiritual life? <laughs> yeah. So it felt like going there was, as it came back, like I had fine tuned, or tuned, not even fine tuned, just generally tuned the instrument. 
and I was able to play for a week with the orchestra even here, as the orchestra was a bit more cacophonic as I usually am part of, and I was a little more into. So the way I made the back, if I am, as a matter of practice, is practice, but I really love it. Um, is is that kind of approach, like the Daisushin or the Sahara? It's a little bit like fine tuning and bringing back the instrument that for a while make it a little bit more tune and then I'm sure I'm just go like yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um. so this is our orchestra you know in the cloud in the ground this is where we help each other tune into a tune Michael uh, I was just thinking it might be helpful just out of my own process. I was like, oh, I, there's so many stories I intended to write. Mm. And just hearing your short stories, I think it might be really helpful if we could share them with the Sangha. Yeah. Um, just very short. And, mm -hmm. and there's some accountability of the Sangha to do that would be helpful for me for my, to share those things. Yeah. If that's something people want to do. Because I feel like it could go on, but I felt like I learned a lot, and I feel like I want to share it. So, well, yeah. I mean, yes, and I mean, I think offering a talk, but also be really interesting. Maybe we could have like a shared document. That, that's, oh, sorry, that's what I was Is that what you suggesting, yeah. like yeah. a, a yeah. document or something. Of, yeah, just put those up there so they're there. Yeah, for be nice. Or everyone can process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a Google Doc and have people Yeah. Actually, it'd be great for our sangha just to have that mm -hmm. yeah. as our own practice yeah. insights to share with each other in that virtual mm -hmm. space. I mean, maybe like chapter one is Tassahara or section one, and we just write our own sutras. Mm -hmm. Do you have something? Yeah, <laughs> you, Michael uh, did this. Do you have something in particular from your experience you would want to offer now? Sure. Um, I just was thinking about... Uh, leaving Tassavara mm -hmm. and uh, the first place that I went, the first space that I went was a gas station to pay <laughs> to, to leave um, and it was strange to me to not uh, bow <laughs> um, and I kind of it was, there was a sadness that happened. Mm -hmm. I started to feel like I was entering a space of, of, of um, potentiality, mm -hmm. but also one that had a lot of greed, hate, and delusion. And it, mm -hmm. it suddenly arose very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Particularly the greed, I, uh, on my way back, I was carrying something that was more than four ounces or whatever the, the item was. And right ahead of me, there was a mother and son who were being so cruel to the TSA mm. officer. They were mocking him because they, mm. he was investigating their bags and was taking things. Mm. Um, and she was setting this example for her son, and it was, it was, it was very upsetting Painful. to me. Yeah, and um, there was no system for us to... to the, the items in this bag that were being investigated, they, just, they, they opted to just let them go. So there were large... Uh, sunscreens and large toiletries and large mm -hmm. unopened things and just really big items. And coming from Tassahara, it felt so strange to me to suddenly be in a world where, you know, can they give those items to someone? No, we have, there's, and there's reasons why we can't. 
but it just it just was so strange to not be in a community even even uh I opted, and I think maybe that's what I learned, is I had an item that was over four ounces. And instead of just throwing in the trash, I opted to take the time to go back to go through the security to check the bag. Mm. Because I was just like, I don't want to be a part of this whole thing. Like, I'd rather just check the bag and make sure that I don't just throw something in the trash. So I think it had that effect on me. Mm. And just going even, um, so I guess the fallout is something that I need to process. Because if you were to go into a public restroom in Tassajara, I felt like you, you, know, you bowed three mm-hmm. times. You bowed three times <laughs> to a deity, and I lit some incense before using the loo. You yeah. know? And then you enter a, a public restroom in an airport, and you're like, well, that sort of accountability isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. So it just was a little jarring mm-hmm. to, to enter the relative world again. Yeah. So there's a, a tenderness that we get in touch with and feel that you're talking about. And it's so important that we have Sangha to help us return and, and manage that. Because if we were always that tender, what would our world look like? <laughs> what if we took the effort to go back and check the bag? What if we were like, maybe do I really want to buy this extra thing? And, you know, instead we have this world just, you know, uh, commodifying, monetizing our attention and our choices. And it's very, you know, it's, it's really jarring to come back into the world and, and feel the real impact of just carelessly throwing things away. You know, at Tassapara, everything is shared pretty much or recycled somehow. And if you have a piece of garbage, you know it because you've got to do something with it. You don't just, like, throw it on the ground. Um, some people might, but I know in the past, in the, back in the day, people in the 70s told me Tassar was like a trash heap. So people learned. But that's from sitting together and living together and supporting each other to be open enough to the world. So thank you, everyone, for these beautiful stories. And we can hear more. Sure, there's so much. Could I make a contribution, please? Yes, Jan. Um, This is not a very Buddhist. uh, Well, it is in a way. Um, I was, you know, I I bought Ed Brown's Tassajara Bread Book a long time ago. And I heard him speak at Green Gulch. Uh, But I guess one of the things that surprised me the most was the kitchen. And um, I would have spent more time in the kitchen if I had realized that I could have. I, I got into a different work group, but um, I don't know who did the cooking, but the food at Tassajara was really superior. I, I have to say that it was it was all vegetarian food, and. Uh, I don't think anybody lost any weight there. It was the really, really good meals. So um, I don't think that's something that should be overlooked, that uh, somehow or other, a person can cook for, what was it about 60 or 70 people? Yes. Make the food just really, really good. Uh, I don't know. It's that that is a skill that would be so far beyond me that I couldn't even approach it. Uh, so that there was that that I feel should be noted. <clears throat> and, 
and then uh, my my other story comes after Tassahara. Uh, in fact, more than a week after Tassahara, I was taking a plane from Portland, Oregon to Chicago, and I got into the place where you, you know you've gone through TSA and all that. And I went to buy a cup of coffee, and the person who was in line in front of me said, "May I buy you a cup of coffee?" And I, unfortunately, I said, "Why?" <laughs> and it was just because she wanted to, and she also bought me a treat. And I thought, you find Buddhist nature in the airport sometimes. Mm-hmm. She did tell me that she would. Her, I thought she said it was in, in it was for her mother, and her mother was quite a bit younger than me. But um, uh, and I asked her where her mother was, and her mother was someplace. Her mother was alive, but she said I would like to have been with my mother, and I just wanted to treat you. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this time. Thank you. So this is this is what unconditioned, unconditional love can be, even if we're afraid to say love in Buddhism. Thank you, Jan. Anything else from our bodhisattvas? So I hope everybody who hasn't been to Tassajara, at least in this physical body, in this lifetime, uh, now feels like you have. There was a quote that I don't know where it's from, maybe some, some of you scholars know, but it was something like raising a whisk, not a whisk, um, a community for a day abiding forever. And this is our practice, I pray. So thank you all very much for uh, bringing forth the Dharma of Tassavar together.